And uh, when the disciples went with the Lord to Emmaus, didn't realize it was the Lord, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread there at Emmaus. They finally recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. We read in Luke 24, 33, And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found to gather together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, as appeared to Simon. I suspect say, The Lord is risen indeed. And that's where this greeting comes from. He is risen, he is risen indeed. Today we're going to look at uh, some passages regarding our Lord's resurrection and the significance of his victory over death. And we'll begin in Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2. Um, while you're turning there, we like the idea of eternal life, of Jesus conquering death and sharing his victory over death with us, and rightly so. That's a wonderful thing. We like the idea of Jesus conquering hell. When I asked Christ to save me, it was largely because I was afraid of hell. I wanted to be saved from hell. Um, That's something to be excited about, that we won't have to experience hell. Um, We may not be quite as excited about Jesus, by his resurrection, conquering sin. As we consider Christ's victory... I think it's essential that we see the connection <coughs> excuse me, between sin, death, and hell. You can't separate them. When Jesus rescues us from one, he rescues us from all of them. There's no rescue from death or hell apart from a rescue from sin. Christ's triumph over the grave was a triumph over sin. And that's what we rejoice in. Sin is the evil, if you think about it. And death and hell are simply the consequences of sin. So think about what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is a choice we make that does not align with God's character. Sin is something we choose that is outside of perfect fellowship with God. So let's read about man's first sin and the consequences in Genesis 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat eat from it, you will surely die. And if you move, (coughs) excuse me, to the next chapter, we'll read what is arguably the saddest verse in the entire Bible, Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, he ate. Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. If I had to pick the two saddest words, the shortest phrase of the saddest thing in the Bible, he ate. It was read in Genesis 3, 6. In Romans 5, verse 12, we're told, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And 1 Timothy 2, 14, by the way, tells us that Adam was not tricked like Eve. In case you missed it in Genesis, Adam wasn't fooled. Eve was. 
He deliberately chose death with Eve over life with God. It's Adam, not Eve, that um, God holds responsible for bringing sin to humanity and death through sin. Adam rebelled against God. He made a choice (coughs) that was not within the realm of fellowship with God. Adam's choice was not aligned with God's character. Hold your place in Romans and turn over to James. We're going to see what James says about sin and death in James chapter 1. James 1, 14. James 1, 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, I think death in this passage is not limited to physical death. I think that every aspect of death is intended here in James 1. We should understand that, including the second death, the lake of fire that we referred to as hell. Likewise, in uh, Romans 6.23, we read, The wages of sin is death. It's referring to more than just our physical death. But today, we celebrate victory, right? Christ's victory over sin, death, and hell. So let's turn back to Romans 5. Hopefully you've kept your place there. And we're going to pick up in verse 20. And I'll just tell you that initially, when I was thinking about this sermon and what I was going to do, um, I thought I would have three sets of verses for you. One showing Christ's victory over sin, another set showing his victory over death, and another set showing his victory over hell. Well, when I started into it, (laughs) I realized... That's really not a good idea because that's not the way the scriptures present it. Um, the passages that speak of Christ's victory in his resurrection so often combine all of these things that it's very hard and I think very artificial to try to split them apart because they are inextricably linked. Sin, death, and hell go together. We can't separate them. So as we're going to read some passages about Christ's victory, here's some things just to notice. Think about yourself as we go through these things. Uh, Just how these three aspects are related. Victory over sin, over death, and over hell. How all that is tied together and brought together. Um, Also, please notice how Christ's victory applies to us in our justification, in our sanctification, and in our glorification. So that's a lot to think about. Time to wake up and (laughs) try to think about these things because I'm not going to point everything out as we read here. Um, I'll make some comments. But we'll begin in Romans 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I hope you see, you're seeing here some of the, our sanctification process related to Christ's resurrection. 
Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Which, by the way, is a very strong indication of, you know, there's a vast difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Christ, right? Lazarus was physically raised back to life, but he died again as others or several others in history who have been raised from the dead by miracles of God, but they died again. Um, But the resurrection of Christ, death is no longer master over him. He was resurrected into glory. Lazarus wasn't glorified at the moment he was resurrected there. Okay, where were we? Verse 10, thank you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace." So Christ, by his death and his resurrection, has conquered sin and rescued us from slavery to sin. And this passage primarily deals, uh, I think, with um, Christ's victory over sin and how it applies in our justification and then from based on that in our sanctification. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll see a little bit more of this. My throat's a bit scratchy today. I apologize. <coughs> Verse 24, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation, <clears throat> excuse me, the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it was appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, be, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Christ has put away sin. That moment is the focal point of all of history. So when he comes for his bride, it won't have anything to do with sin. He won't have to, he won't have to suffer for sin again. That is done once for all. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my absolute favorite chapters of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, the focus of Christ's victory over death is more about victory over physical death and on our glorification. We'll start in uh, verse 1, I think that is. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, 
which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. By the way, do you know what it means to believe in vain? If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see. If Christ had not risen, you believed in vain. That's what it's referring to. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's affirming some things here as of first importance. Christ died for our sins. And he goes on to demonstrate here in chapter 15 that uh, Christ's bodily resurrection is also of first importance because our sins uh, would not have been dealt with apart from Christ's resurrection. If Christ had not been raised, none of this matters at all. Apart from Christ's resurrection, Christ's death for our sins is meaningless. It's empty. It's worthless. Take a look at verse 17. We're going to skip down a bit here. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But Christ's resurrection is the victory over sin. It's the guarantee of our future resurrection and glorification. If you look in verse 20 here, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, just like we were reading in Romans chapter 5. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. What assurance that gives us. Jump down to verse 35, and we're going to read some details about our resurrection and glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is answering objections. Some folks in Corinth were claiming there, what, there is no resurrection. And so this is one of their arguments. And uh, you see how... Paul responds in verse 36. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. To a funeral, you see that the body that goes into the ground is not a glorified body, right? You see that. But look what kind of victory over death we share with Christ here, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. By the way, um, just a short interjection here. Some people, it was became popular some time ago to say that Christ did not raise bodily from the dead. It's just some kind of spiritual, ethereal resurrection idea. Um, and they might point to this kind of a verse that 
He became the last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But that is nonsense. I mean, certainly Paul has already in chapter 15 been very emphatic about the bodily resurrection of Christ. But as far as what this particular verse means, it seems to me obvious. Whoa. (laughs) This is an important point you guys need to get. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, It says right in the same verse, the first man became a living soul. Now, the soul, of course, is also an immaterial part of the body. But that's not denying that Adam had a physical body, right? In the same way, it's not denying that Christ becoming a life-giving spirit is not denying his physical body either, any more than Adam as a living soul did not have a physical body. It's just emphasizing that he gives us there is spiritual life involved here, and our body is, is involved in that as well. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. We're going to be like Christ. What a glorious hope that we will bear the image of Christ, the image of God that we were created in originally, distorted and twisted by the fall, is then going to be perfect. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death, (coughs) death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain, not in vain. That concludes One of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. What an emphatic presentation of Christ's victory over sin and death and our participation in that victory by God's grace. I'd like to conclude a bit early today. I'm hoping we'll have some more time to sing and, of course, enjoy what the the Sunday School has presented. But uh, just... uh, It's one thing to listen and read the scriptures together, and that's a wonderful thing, but I think it's also appropriate, especially on a day like today, that we rejoice together um, in singing our praises to the Lord. So we're going to conclude here with just some thoughts from Revelation, where we see uh, Christ's ultimate victory on display. And begin in Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John, who back when Christ was... um, Before him, bearing the image of the first Adam, he reclined his head on his breast. But see now when he's glorified, 
what happens here. Revelation 1.17. When I, that is John, saw him, he didn't go up and lean his head on his breast at this point. I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. If you look at the description here that Christ gives him of himself here, I am the first and the last. Think about that. That's pretty awesome. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's awesome. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. No wonder there was fear. But why should he say, don't be afraid? I think we see an answer to that if you back up to verse 5. Revelation 1.5, we see a further description of our Lord. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us, released us from our sins by his blood. Far from being hostile toward us or even neutral, Jesus loves us and he shares his victory with us. Victory over sin and death and hell. He even has the keys. What's left to fear? Why should we be afraid? We're going to skip all the way to, verse, uh, to chapter 21 now. And here we read what we are all longing for. We've read it once today. We're going to read it again. When death is finally relegated to the dustbin of history, we read in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful. What confidence we have in the hope the scriptures give us. What confidence when God himself is the one who's assuring us of the veracity of these words. If you look over in chapter 22, Jesus is named as the one who testifies to these truths. Um, And as we remember his victory today, his resurrection, we're pointed to his ultimate victory as well. Revelation 22.20. He who, he who testifies to these things says, and get that, it's the person who is testifying to all these things that we've just been reading about. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We began with the ancient greeting <clears throat> that's so appropriate today. He is risen indeed. And we've explored some of the implications of uh, Christ's resurrection Well, there's another ancient greeting that uh, actually was used in the New Testament. And that's found at the end of the first epistle to the Corinthians. You may remember, Maranatha. It means, our Lord, come. When we use that watchword, we are affirming Christ's death for our sins. His bodily resurrection with all of its implications. 
and his imminent return for us. So we can best celebrate Easter, I think, and celebrate Christ's resurrection every day by living the life of victory over sin. That's what it's all about. And we can be set free. We know that we are set free, but we can live as set free from the fear of death and hell, rejoicing in the hope of glory and looking for our Savior's appearing. <clears throat> He's risen indeed. Maranatha. Let's pray. Our Savior, we are so thankful and we rejoice so much in your victory that you have shared with us, your great love in bringing this to us, and the hope that we have and for recording all of these things for us in your word. So, Lord, we pray for your, your help in remembering the truth of these things as we go about our lives in this world. And help us, Lord, to keep an accurate and eternal perspective and a focus on the things that really matter. And so, Lord, we just give you thanks for this victory over sin, over death, over hell, and the work that you're doing in all of us here together. 